the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. This great nation will endure as it has endured. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. We're not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. From every mountainside, let freedom ring, and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom ring. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420. The answer is your host, Bob France. Yes, indeed it is. And a good morning to you. Thank you so much for joining us. We're getting your day started at nine minutes after the hour of nine o'clock. Kind of, sort of, because maybe you already got your day started with Hugh Hewitt, and that's good. Maybe you're going to stay here all day long on AM 1420, The Answer. That's even better, because we're going to bring you the best news, commentary, and analysis of what's going on in this country, in this state, in this city, uh, anywhere in America, quite frankly. That's how good uh, I truly believe this Salem lineup to be. Glad to be a small part of it, and glad you're here. It is a Tuesday. It is the 10th, or excuse me, yeah, the 10th morning of the first month in the year of our Lord, 2023. On the program today, we're going to talk to Josh Hammer of Newsweek about a couple of important issues. And we're going to talk, of course, to the longest-serving commissioner in the history of the United States Civil Rights Commission, Peter Kersenow. It is a Kersenow day. Pete got an early start. Did you see him last night on Tucker? He told me, uh, I don't know, a month, month and a half ago, something like that, that he was going to be away for a little while. He had to go up for two, three, four days, whatever it was, to Maine, to visit with Tucker in Tucker's cabin, his kind of studio cabin, if you will, 
Uh, it's not exactly uh, uh, chopping wood out there and burning and and uh, burning uh, uh, you know logs on his fire and and living the you know the the old fashioned way, the pioneer way. It's pretty outdated or it's pretty updated rather and pretty modern. But Pete said it's really cool. Anyway, uh, he's there for Tucker Carlson today doing a, a special. And uh, last night we got our first taste of Peter Kirstenau on Tucker Carlson uh, uh, tonight. Tucker Carlson tonight, meaning last night. So uh, that was good stuff. Maybe I'll play a little bit of that video, and I'll let uh, Peter talk about his experiences there. But we have a host of things we're going to get into this morning. I want to start with what I consider to be a very telling couple of surveys this morning. The first of which uh, finds that Americans, generally speaking, are very, very distraught over the state of the country right now. Very distraught about the future of the country looking ahead to tomorrow. A big CBS survey says, as a matter of fact, that Americans are scared about the direction of the country that we're going right now. Some say angry as well. Several polls have shown since Joe Biden took office that Americans are very concerned about where we're headed under his leadership under Democrat leadership. Now, again, this is a CBS poll. I don't want to hear any crap about push polling. It's not a Fox poll. It's not a Rasmussen poll or any other poll that might be considered to be conservative-leaning or any of that garbage. This is a CBS poll, the most recent anyway. Uh, Biden's overall job approval rating has been underwater. Now, with Bidenomics uh, wreaking havoc on this country now for a third straight year in his under his leadership, Things like inflation, things like the border security crisis, which we discussed at length yesterday. Most Americans say they do not feel optimistic about the direction of the country. They're scared and they're angry. The CBS News YouGov poll published yesterday showed 71% of Americans. That's, that's significant. 7 out of 10 feel scared or angry about the direction of the country. Raise your hand right now if you're one of them. I know it's radio, but play along. I can tell you my hand is in the air. I'm very scared about the direction of this country. I am slightly more optimistic after the outcome of the, uh, not really the outcome because I would have been more optimistic had we had our red wave or our red tsunami, but just the fact that we have taken back the majority in the House, and now we see what some of the plans are for the committees. We got the rules package passed yesterday. I'm slightly more optimistic, but I'm still scared, and I'm still angry because that Republican majority House, slim as it is, can't get anything past the Democrat majority Senate. Gridlock is on the horizon. We're going to have more of the status quo save for potentially some accountability because of some investigations. And by the way, a new judiciary subcommittee is being created that's going to be headed up by Jim Jordan. We'll talk to him tomorrow about it to literally target and go after and hold accountable the individuals who are making Americans scared and angry about the direction of this country. Seven out of ten surveyed by CBS said that's how they are, scared and angry. The smallest percentage went to people who said they're excited 
about things in the United States over the next year. And that was just 11%. So 7 out of 10 scared and angry. 1 out of 10 say they are excited about the future and the direction of this country. I find this kind of staggering. I'll give you some of the some of the other uh, results of this poll. Among Republicans, the survey found that House Republicans should prioritize choice A, working with Biden and Democrats, 48% of all Republicans said yes to that. Opposing Biden and Democrats, 52% said yes to that. But what's really interesting is we're still a MAGA party, aren't we? Because MAGA Republicans self-identified jumps to only, or excuse me, falls to only 32% say work with Biden and the Democrats. 68% of the MAGA Republicans say oppose Biden and the Democrats. Asked Democrats asked by the survey what they want Biden and the Senate majority to work with House Republicans on include their top three answers, lowering inflation, 76% of Democrats said that, 71% say protecting Social Security and Medicare, and 63% said reducing crime, which is interesting. It's very interesting that 6 out of 10 Democrats want Biden and the Senate majority to work on reducing crime when it is Democrats who overwhelmingly support the the, uh, uh, defunding of police. An overwhelming majority of Democrats support left-wing DAs letting, in the name of equity, racial equity, people uh, who are accused of violent crimes go free without cash bail. The overwhelming number of Democrats who say we should reduce crime support uh, the emptying of the prisons, all in the name of equity because of the racist nature of the criminal justice system. Very interesting. 76% of Democrats want to lower inflation when it is literally, specifically, the policies of their Democrat president that caused this massive inflation. So we could get into some of the specifics about uh, the, the various issues and topics and so on and so forth, but more specifically, I want to just focus on the overall satisfaction of the American people, according to CBS and their survey, that say 71% find themselves scared and angry about the direction of this country. Only 10%, 1 out of 10, say they're excited about the future and the direction of this country. Now, I'm going to take that and I'm going to move over to another poll. This one is different. This is not CBS. This is a survey by Morning Consult asking Americans whether or not they're proud to live in the United States. And they broke the results down by generation. And I want you to tell me what you think this says about this country at the moment. Asked whether or not they are proud to live in the United States. The largest generation or the largest percentage to answer yes was the baby boomer generation, which you can probably expect. They've been here a lot longer. They have experienced all of the majesty and the glory that the United States has to offer. They have watched the United States evolve, become better, atone for past mistakes, and become the greatest force for good in the history of human civilization. 73%. Next, 
Generation X, of which I am a part, 54% say they're proud to live in the United States. Little disappointed in that number, to be quite frank with you. Would have expected that to be closer to 60-70% as well. But 54 to 46, they say, we say, we are proud to live in the United States. Next, the millennials. Only 36%, so 3.5 out of 10, say they're proud to live in the United States. And now we start to get into the generation, the millennials, that really started to become indoctrinated rather than educated that really started to become radicalized by radical teachers, teaching radical theory, teaching Marxist principles without using those names. Millennials? Not quite really thrilled with living in the United States, just 36%. And then we come to Gen Z. Today's kids, today's young college students, high school students, Recently graduated, only 16% of Gen Z is proud to live in this country. What does that tell you? I want you to ponder where Gen Z is getting their news compared to where baby boomers got their news. I want you to ponder where Gen Z's experiences come from compared to when Gen Xers or to the experiences that Gen Xers have had in this country. Generation Z wakes up every day, the young kids of today, and opens up TikTok. And they wake up and they open up Snapchat and they open up Twitter. They very rarely will flip on the television to see the morning news. And, of course, if they turn on the morning news today, they're not going to get the kind of news that we got back then either. They're going to get kind of uh, support for the news that they're getting from TikTok. They're going to get far left, radically biased news that does not put the United States in a good light. Stories of systemic oppression, of an irredeemably racist society, police officers targeting minorities. They're going to get stories of, of, of poor migrants just looking for a better of life, being apprehended and being harassed by Border Patrol agents, ICE officers. Conservative, conservative Americans. How are they supposed to develop any pride to live in the United States when they are taught that the United States is so evil? Generation Z opens up their, their, their phones each day, turns on their phones, and starts tapping out stories of drag queen story hour being, being condemned and being criticized by boomers by hateful, intolerant boomers who just don't want to let people express themselves and be whatever it is that they want to be and show other people how liberating it can be to change genders and change stereotypes and and, and become whatever it is that you want to be. You're not trapped in the binary. And they look at the boomers and they literally, and I know this because I'm not a boomer, but I'm online and some of the things that I say in my tweets... And Facebook comments perhaps make me sound like a boomer as they would see it. And they think for some reason, by the way, that calling one a boomer is an insult, but that's what they do. When I condemn the sexualization of children by the far left, by the drag queen story hours, by the librarians who bring them in, 
by the school teachers who say there should be a drag queen in every school. When I condemn these things as being sexualizing, normalizing deviancy for little kids, typical response that I get is, okay, boomer, like you're too old to understand what's what's right and, and, and how we want to live and the kind of country we want to live in. Okay, boomer. Okay, boomer is a way of basically just saying, go ahead and live out your life and die. We got this from here. We're dismissing you. We're dismissing your experience. We're dismissing everything about you because you're a boomer. Now, again, I'm not a boomer. My father's generation, that's boomers. But they use it as a pejorative. They use it as a, as a way to criticize and condemn and insult somebody. When I would take the courage, the strategy, the intelligence, the drive, the vision, and the work ethic of every boomer I have ever seen or heard of over the lazy, bored, disinterested Generation Zers who think somehow they're going to get by without actually getting a job, make money online through some scam or another, while while deciding to change genders whenever they wish, deciding to change species whenever they wish, deciding to normalize every deviancy that this country has ever experienced or ever could experience, I would take a country led by the the idealistic boomers over the fantastically confused and demented and it's not their fault. It's how they're being raised. It's how they're being raised. It's how they're being educated. It's what's going on in their their homes. It's what's going on in their schools. It's what's going on in their media life, in movies, in music, online, on their phones. It's not really their fault, but it is what they are. And that's why only 16% of them are proud to live in the United States. 73% of boomers are proud to live in the United States. It's why 70-plus percent of CBS respondents say they are scared and worried and and angry about the future of this country, and only 1 out of 10 say that they are actually excited about it. What's that tell you about the leadership of this country? What's that tell you about the direction? I want to discuss this with you this morning at 216-901-0945, What are your reactions to those surveys? Are you as concerned as many in the survey are? Are you as worried? Are you scared about the future? What are we talking about, the year, the next year? We're talking about the next five years, talking about the next 20 years? i got to tell you, I'm scared about it at every single level, and I'm a Gen, uh, Gen Xer. I want to hear from you, 216-901-0945. Before we break, though, I am going to ask you to do what we always do. Because we are part of the respondents who are proud to live in America, let's stand up. Let's face a flag nearby, and let's do our Pledge of Allegiance. If you are one of those, one out of ten, or uh, excuse me, if you are one of those um, uh, ten percenters, if you will, in Gen Z, I guess it was 16 percenters who don't care about this country and are not proud to live here, well, don't fake it. You are exempted from the request to stand and pledge your allegiance to this flag. Instead, you can take a knee next to your favorite pink-haired soccer player, your favorite WNBA, America-hating former Russian prisoner, and your favorite ex-quarterback. For the rest of us, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, 
one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Got a good show lined up for you. I want you to be a part of it at 216-901-0945. Always Right Radio is right back. against the darkness of tyranny. Always Right Radio with Bob France and The Answer. Onward now, 937. Good morning to you. Thanks for joining us on AM 1420, The Answer. Going to go to phones here. Uh, I got a few things I still want to talk about here before we get into guests later on, but um, but I do want to hear from you as well. Um, if you just turn the radio on, you missed the open. A new CBS poll kind of gives us a snapshot of... Uh, of what this country feels about itself and the people of this country and how they feel about itself. CBS found that um, 71% of Americans describe themselves as either scared or angry, or both, about the direction of the country. Only 1 out of 10, 11%, say they're excited about things in the United States. A separate poll, which I just kind of joined up because I wanted to, a separate poll from... Um, and I seem to have misplaced it now. I apologize for that. But the separate poll indicated that only seven, uh, only uh, 16% of Gen Zers describe themselves as being proud of living in America. 73% of baby boomers say they're proud of living in America. 54% of Generation Xers are proud. Only about 35% of, ge- of uh, millennials and just 16% of Gen Zers, which says a lot about their upbringing, and it says a lot about their education, the kind of education uh, that they're getting right now, of course would make them hate this country. They're being taught to hate this country. They're being taught that the historical figures that gave us this country were all irredeemably racist, that George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, the founders and heroes of the Revolution, and those who authored the Constitution that they're all bad. We have to take down their statues, rename schools, rename cities, because they're all, they're all highlighting the wrong things. If this is all young Gen Zers are having their heads filled with, how could they say they're proud to live in the United States? And before I go to a call, last thing I'll say. Do you want to know who is most proud to live in the United States? And I'm not talking about the survey I just gave about baby boomers. The, the type of people that are most proud of living in the United States? Foreigners. Immigrants. They've experienced what life can be in other countries without the glory and the beauty and the majesty of the Constitution and the rights afforded people and the opportunity to not just survive but to thrive in this country. They put their lives on the line, many of them, to get here. Or if they're doing it the legal way, they, they sometimes have to wait three, four, five, six, eight, ten years to get to the United States. And when they get here, they know the reason they're willing to go through all of that. Because they know this is the greatest opportunity and the most fair, the most just, the least oppressive, the least racist country on the face of this planet. They are so glad to be here. Immigrants to this country get it. 
spoiled, privileged, younger Americans have no idea. They haven't been to other places. They have no idea how good they have it. That's the real, I think, takeaway from those surveys. But I would love to hear what you think. 216-901-0945-888-281-1110. TJ's in Cleveland first. Hey, TJ, you're on the air. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, hi, Bob. You know, Bob, I'm angry. I think I'm more angry than scared. But, you know, the other night I was watching on Fox and uh, Ashley Babbitt's mother, you know, the woman yeah, who was murdered who was in murdered, the Capitol, yes. mm-hmm. has been doing a peaceful protest, I guess, all by herself in front of the Capitol. Well, on January 6th, they arrested her for jaywalking. Now, they didn't give her a ticket. They put her in handcuffs and put her in a police car and arrested her. Now, if that doesn't scare the average American, I don't know what doesn't. I mean, you've got people in D.C. that are, are killers, that are being let out. They're not being charged, no bail and stuff. And they're going to arrest an innocent woman and put her in handcuffs for jaywalking. Yeah, I uh, I didn't hear about the jaywalking. I knew she well, was they doing showed her own it. personal. Per- no, I believe you. I, I'm, I'm just saying I'm gonna. I, I just didn't hear it. I'm glad you're telling me about it. Um, yeah, they they had it, and it, conveniently they seem to have like a news crew there to show her in handcuffs being uh, put into a police car. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, um, I mean was she? Well, let me let me ask if I may. Was she was she blocking traffic the way uh, you know we always complain about no, protesters no. blocking traffic? One of those kind of things. No, from what they said, she just camped out in front of the Capitol the last couple months doing a one person protest. You know, on the, the killing of her daughter. Okay. And 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 I, she obviously, I guess she jaywalked, and they arrested her. And and like I said, they had her in handcuffs for jaywalking. Well, here's here's what I just pulled up while you were talking, TJ. Um, Ashley Babbitt's mother was arrested Friday during a memorial for her daughter on the second anniversary. Footage showed Mickey Withoft being, I guess that's her name, uh, being apprehended by Capitol Police after they warned her and bystanders to move to the sidewalk and stop obstructing traffic near the Capitol. The group did not have a permit to demonstrate on Capitol grounds. Officers established a clear police line to prevent the group from moving further west on Independence Avenue, southwest. The officers and officials told the group to get out of the road or the group would be arrested. The sidewalk was open, Capitol Police said in a statement. Quote, we are not discussing it. Sidewalk now or you're under arrest. An officer warned her. Video of the encounter showed. Withoff then turned her back to the officers and refused to move, so an officer grabbed her arms and detained her. Uh, according to the video footage. So here's the thing. They're playing hardball to make a point, and I think she was doing that deliberately to make a point, and I'm glad she did. Because you know what, TJ? I literally didn't hear about her own little one-woman protest. But the fact that she got arrested made it news. And you knew about it because she got arrested. You called me because she got arrested. Now I know about it because she got arrested. I think this was probably her intention. She needed to draw attention to the fact that her daughter was murdered and nobody cares. At least nobody in Cap- on Capitol Hill, including the Republicans. Nobody is doing anything about it. Uh, she made a point that I think she needed to get to the news, and 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 part of that is getting arrested. If that video is correct, and this is what the this is the Washington Examiner, it's not a left wing newspaper. If uh, that video that they are quoting is correct, and she was told get on the sidewalk or be arrested, and she turned her back on them, then she chose to be arrested, and I bet it was for a pretty good reason. She wanted everybody to see this. 
Yeah, that very well, not that very well may be. I mean, yeah. it's the, but I mean, on the video, she wasn't putting up a fight or anything. I mean, it was just. Oh no, of course not. Well, she well she she learned she can't put up a fight or else she's going to get shot like her daughter. Well, and, I, and, although sad to say, her daughter didn't even fight. All her daughter did was try to go through the through the uh, the window of the door, if you will. Uh, that's not, when she got not, shot. Not only that, but they had films of the daughter trying to tell people to go back to get out of the Capitol. Yeah. She yeah. was actually trying to uh, restore order, her daughter, right. you know, not breaking in and stuff and all. And, he, and she was just gunned down. No, but I mean, she did, you know? she, did, she did try to go through, though, herself, whether she told other people to back off or not, that okay. But she did try to go through herself, which means she was indeed trespassing. And apparently um, what we have now learned is that if you're a white female, you can be shot by a police officer for trespassing, and there is no charges against that officer. I wonder if she had been a Black Lives Matter activist doing the exact same thing, a black woman or a black male climbing through a window, shot and killed, unarmed, by a police officer. I wonder how that would have been reported. And I, and no. I, wonder, and I wonder whether or not that officer would have faced charges. Yeah, and then I just heard Biden gave him an award just recently for his actions on January 6th. Yeah, he, well, he gave all of them. Yeah, I think you're yeah. right. <laughs> and he gave all of the Capitol Hill police uh, big and, honors. And a and police officer so that should have been fired long before that. With, yeah. uh, 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 what, did he leave his gun in the bathroom on a sink the one time? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, he shouldn't even have been on the force. And, I remember and, all of those things. He, he had gets, previous, yeah, previous well, discipline issues. With, uh, with, with, uh, the new Congress and stuff and all, maybe a lot of this January 6th stuff uh, that we didn't hear about in the January 6th committee. Maybe this stuff will start to come out. Well, you know, I'll tell the, you something. The, the I'm going to tell you something. Hundreds of hours of video yeah. and stuff that well, it's, it's not even. Yeah, it's not even the committee. Well, I, I do want to get more on the committee, but we, we know who the committee is. We know what the committee did. What my hope is with the new Congress, TJ, and thanks for the call, my friend. Keep listening. What I hope, <laughs> excuse me, is that a, um, uh, a special... Um, uh, that special attention is put upon the the prisoners. Now, I've said this before, and I don't want to get too repetitive here. I believe in upholding the law. And if somebody is committing a riot or engaging in a riot, if they're smashing, if they're, if they're vandalizing, if they're stealing slash looting in a riot, I want them arrested and I want them charged to whatever the law says they should be charged or with what the law says and and treated accordingly. And I don't care if you're a Black Lives Matter or Antifa rider in the George Floyd summer of rage or if you're on Capitol Hill on January 6, 2021. If you're rioting and doing those things, you should be held accountable according to the law. I have no problem with that. But those individuals... Not just rioters, but those who followed police officer invitations to go through the doors of the Capitol as they stepped to the side and pulled back the rope, if you will, and said, go on in and just don't, uh, don't break anything or don't take anything. Some of those people, along with the actual rioters, are still being held two years later without a trial. That's not um, treating them, or that is not... Uh, 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 um, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm not even prosecuting yet because they haven't had a trial to be prosecuted, but they're not being uh, held to whatever the law allows. You understand what I mean? Thousands and thousands of BLM rioters did not face charges for all of the things they did, many of which were far, far worse, far worse than what was done at the Capitol. 
They did not face it because it was determined by the powers that be that they had a legitimate reason for their rage. They were raging and they were protesting and they got out of control. The mostly peaceful riots. Remember what CNN said? The mostly peaceful riots were defensible and justifiable because George Floyd had died. And they were, they were marching for equality and they were protesting and they were smashing and they were burning and they were attacking and they were uh, uh, injuring cops all because they had a legitimate reason. Because of, because of racial inequality. And that's why they didn't face any charges. But you go to the Capitol, well, they didn't have a justifiable reason for their anger and for their, their protests that turned out of control. No, no justification at all. They didn't have the justification of a you know, racial uh, 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 oppression and racial disparities uh, to back them. So, therefore, they're going to not only be punished more harshly, well, because the individuals in the George Floyd riots never got punished at all, smacking their wrist is more harshly, but... Since they didn't have uh, the, you know, the, the righteousness of the rioters in the George Floyd riots, they are not only going to be held accountable, but they're going to have their constitutional rights to a speedy trial violated. They have been stripped of their rights, according to multiple, multiple sources, close to those who are being held. Not only are they not having their rights to a constitutional rights to a speedy trial, uh, um, uh, stripped away, or they're having them stripped away. They're also having their rights to defense, to counsel, to a lawyer stripped away. They're not allowed to uh, uh, to uh, communicate and collaborate with their lawyers. They're allowed like one phone call a week. I mean, what is being done to them is, I mean, it, it, this is dystopian. They've been thrown in a gulag, if you will, and nobody on Capitol Hill is doing anything about it. I bring this up only because TJ said, I hope with the new Congress they're going to look into the January 6th committee, and I do too, but I hope with the new Congress they're going to look into the January 6th prisoners that are having their rights violated. They need to bring these people in. They need to bring them before committees. Subpoena the prisoners. Make them come out. Obviously they would want to, but let them come out by by subpoenaing them. What can they do? What can the DOJ do? What can the police do? What can the FBI do if, if, uh, if a congressional committee chair like Jim Jordan subpoenas some of the individuals who are being held right now in conditions that are described as worse than Guantanamo Bay? They have to let them come out and testify. Not about what happened in their cases. That is supposed to happen whenever they're actually tried. But about their deten- detention, about their, their prison conditions, and about what what rights they're being uh, being denied, what is being violated. That's what I want to have happen with this new Congress, as much as anything else, as much as any of the investigations, as much as any of the oversight, as much as holding them accountable, finding out what how much Biden profited from Hunter's overseas dealings, which we'll find out on the laptop, as much as the FBI should be investigated for everything they're doing to parents, and the IRS with 87,000 new agents ready to rip the people's lives apart, all of those things, yes, need to be investigated and, 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 and oversight needs to be conducted. But I want these prisoners to be top priority with this. And I'll tell Jim Jordan that when I talk to him tomorrow as the new chair of the Judiciary Committee. Jim Jordan will join me live tomorrow morning. Sally is in Bria next. Sally, thanks for waiting. You're on the air. Go ahead. Hi, Bob. I'm worse than scared. I'm terrified. I'm part of the um, 73%, but I'm just a little bit disappointed that there's even 27% that 
aren't mega. But in any event, I think it's very, it makes me very angry that on both the Fed and the state level, that we haven't really combated adequately, and and we need to just do a better job. I was disappointed with the federal that they did the omnibus rather than the CCR, Mm -hmm. which took some of our power away, and I'm very disappointed with the state, with the uh, betrayal on the legislature, and all of the liberals on the education board, state board of education. So even though I am terrified and angry, I'm even more committed to fight it out. And thank you, Bob. Well, that's and thank you. That's what makes your generation different. Uh, It's what makes, I think, my generation to a lesser extent. I'm disappointed with only 54% of Gen Xers saying that they're uh, proud to live in this country. Uh, I am glad that again that seventy three percent say that uh, uh, they're they're scared and and worried about what's going on in this country and angry because of the direction that we're in because that means they will be ready and willing to fight it. You're right. Your generation, my generation, overwhelmingly, well, not overwhelming, uh, certainly majority, they're not just going to sit here and cry. They're willing to fight to restore this country to to a point where they're not afraid and to a point where they're not angry, but. Um, Restore it to a place where they can say, this is how this country is supposed to look. This is the republic that was gifted to us. This is what we are willing to do to make sure that it's the same country we gift to our kids and to the generation after that as well. I mean, how will history write it? If this country goes straight to hell and we lose the republic and it becomes a Marxist dystopia the way the American left and the globalists want it to become. What will history say about us? It happened on our watch. Roughly 250 years of America building will come crumbling down because of us. Is that is that the place you want in history? Is that what you want? To be restless in your grave over knowing what you did wasn't enough to restore this and to protect this for your kids? That matters to me. Legacy should matter to you, too. We'll be right back. You know, I'm not ashamed to say this song is uh, still on my playlist on my phone. <laughs> as much, you know, uh, for the as much as it is for the message of living in America and loving America and so forth, it's also just the jam, man. I mean, it's James. <laughs> it's just so good, and not to mention, I can picture the entire. Apollo Creed dance that he did on his way out to fight uh, Drago uh, in Rocky IV, which, of course, uh, is what this is from. Yeah, I still listen to it, and I still enjoy the hell out of it. Jerry's in Brexville. Jerry, thanks for waiting. You're on the air. Good morning. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, good morning, Bob. I just wanted to say, in 1917, 1918, my father joined the Army, was in France. In 1942, he was a patriot, and he was proud of his country. In 1942, my brother joined the Air Corps, and he was proud and a patriot. In 1944, I joined the Navy, and I was a proud and a patriot. Now this 
incompetent old man that's in the office is ruining everything I felt about this country. So I just want to say that I don't know what I'd do today if we had a, well, if I was a young man that had a conflict. They just don't seem to be patriots or proud. So I, I'm really against this border thing. I think that guy, incompetent old man, should do something about this border and protect this country. We're, we're getting in one heck of a mess right now. That's uh, all I wanted to say, Bob. You're not wrong, my friend. Thank you, Jerry. God bless you. Uh, you're right. That incompetent old man uh, is uh, has put us on a very dangerous path. And the fact that 73% of Americans say they agree, and that's why they're scared or angry about the future, it kind of underscores what you said. We're going to talk to Peter Kersenow next after the top of the hour news. Peter was on Tucker Carlson last night. Technically, his recording of his... Uh, Special uh, for Tucker Carlson today was on last night. We're going to talk to him about that. We're going to get his thoughts on what happened with McCarthy, the speakership, the border, the direction, and more coming up when hour number two commences on Always Right Radio, AM fourteen twenty. The answer. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Welcome to Always Right Radio with Bob France on AM 1420, The Answer. Hour number two underway. Eight minutes past 10 o'clock. Good Tuesday morning to you. Thanks, Thank you so much for being with us. It is the 10th morning of the first month of the year of our Lord, 2023. Pretty big news last night. Um, getting the rules package passed in Congress was, uh, was a big deal, especially after the long, protracted fight over Kevin McCarthy's speakership to get them to come together and pass the rules package with some very good things, concessions that were gained by those who held out against Kevin McCarthy. Uh, I think we're going to come to realize in time, even after the embarrassment of a week of, you know, infighting and, in fact, nearly physical altercations between Republican members. Uh, after all of that stuff, I think when we look back on it, we're going to say we're glad we did all of that because we got some very, very strong concessions, very, very good things that I think are going to be positive for this country. And we're going to talk about some of them with our next guest. He is, of course, the longest-serving member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. He is a best-selling author. His new book is in the W.E.B. Griffin series, The Devil's Weapons. He is uh, he is also a columnist. He's a law professor. He's the host of the Kersenow Report, and he is Peter Kersenow. Joining us on AM 1420, The Answer. Good Tuesday morning to you, Pete. How are you, my friend? You know, uh, Browns have another losing season behind them, <laughs> but with no first-round draft choice this year, next year, or the year after that. Um, so, you know, at some point, clown shows have to come to an end, don't they? Well, I don't know. The Biden administration is still there. <laughs> it's going to come to an end, hopefully, <laughs> sometime <laughs> in the next couple of years. Oh, Lordy. You know, it's funny. I give you that great big introduction, and you go to the clowns. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, you know what? In in uh, in in their defense, Deshaun Watson was three and three as a starter. So, I mean, congratulations! Oh, and he and Jacoby Brissett combined uh, for I think nineteen touchdowns and 
13 of 14 interceptions, which is exactly the same percentage of touchdowns to interceptions that Baker Mayfield had in his last year playing with a serious injury. So aren't you glad you don't have those three first-round draft picks? Aren't you glad that you spent $230 million guaranteed dollars on this guy? Yeah, it's just... Yeah, that's the that's the clown show. Okay, Peter Kersenow, so much. First of all, congratulations. That was awful fun to to watch you last night. Um, sitting in Tucker's cabin, you and I talked about this briefly when you told me you were going up to Maine to shoot, um, uh, you know, a special uh, segment or two with uh, Tucker uh, for Tucker Carlson today. I thought it was fantastic. You looked and sounded great. You were talking about identity politics. Why don't we talk a little bit about that before we get into the news of the day? Because identity politics, uh, well, it is what drives and and completely defines the Democrat Party. They use it to beat up, uh, you know, the, the rest of America, uh, that if you don't identify or if you don't recognize and support and champion people's identities rather than their mer- uh, you know, than, uh, you know, hold them accountable based on merit or based on their work ethic and so on and so forth, then you, of course, are bigoted and hateful and prejudiced. So tell us a little bit more about your experience up there um, and and about that, about the issue of identity politics. Okay. Yeah, I'll keep the experience brief. I don't want to bore your audience, but it was it was fun, as you might imagine. Um, went up to Portland, Maine, is one of the two places where Tucker tapes these. Uh, he's got a place up there. It's up in the in the sticks. I mean, I, I flew up to Portland, Maine. I thought, uh, you know, they put me up in a hotel, and I thought I was going to be conveyed over to another part of town to a studio. But no, uh, the next morning I was taken on about a two-and-a-half-hour drive up to the sticks where Tucker has a place, this gorgeous place. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really a phenomenal facility. And, um, you know, we conducted the interviews up there, and it was a wide-ranging, you know, it's, it, it, it uh, lasted for more than an hour. You saw maybe a f- couple-minute clip yesterday, but uh, you can access it. It's live-streamed on Fox Nation. We talked about all manner of things, everything related to my work on the Civil Rights Commission and the issues related to that. Because, you know, the Civil Rights Commission... <laughs> Virtually every crazy topic that is about to come up, the left tests out at the Civil Rights Commission first. And what I typically tell people is, if you want to know what the left has planned for the, for the United States of America five years from now, come to a Civil Rights Commission hearing today. And uh, that's proven out over my more than 20 years on the commission. So we talked about, uh, you know, you asked me, you know, what, what's next for the United States of America based on your experience on the Civil Rights Commission. And, you know, I told him, I, I won't uh, spoil it for your audience, but it's not good. It's very bad. It, it's getting more and more bizarre, more and more indefensible. But it's like putting the frog in a boiling pot. Um, because so many of our institutions, in fact, virtually all of our institutions have been taken over by the left and are heavily invested in promoting the leftist agenda, uh, we don't see too many alternate opinions, and they move very slowly and deliberately, almost imperceptibly, and next thing you know, we've got the craziest concepts prevailing across the country. Uh, So the United States, you know, I I think... um, uh, I've heard from a number of sources that, you know, I, I looked at uh, some of the polling data, and most Americans are extremely concerned about the direction of the country, more so than at any time in my lifetime that I can remember. Uh, and not just concerned, not saying right track, wrong track, oh, we think it's on the wrong track. They're petrified about the direction of the country, and deservedly and rightly so. This is not anything, you know, for those of us who've been around for more than 10 minutes, I don't know I've ever seen the country in more precarious position, both in terms of 
our strategic position around the world, our economic position, but most importantly, I think what's driving most of this is our cultural position. The culture is toxic, and those are the things we addressed with Tucker. And, um, you know, I've been on Tucker's show a number of times over the years. Uh, I, I, I've met him in person in, in the past, but this is the first time I had a chance to spend any uh, protracted period of time, quality time. And uh, he's, as he appears on TV, and he is a, just a, <laughs> first of all, hyper smart, uh, knows a lot about a lot of different things. Uh, he is a rock rib, genuine conservative. You know how sometimes, I, I'll speak for myself, um, many of us conservatives, myself included, believe or suspect that uh, the personalities we see on TV or we hear on the radio are not necessarily one of us. Uh, they're doing it. It's part of the shtick. It's what's expected of them. Uh, not with Tucker. Um, you know me. I'm, I'm a right-wing crank in great standing. <laughs> and Tucker matches me on every different issue, except he's a lot smarter and a lot better informed. Uh, he's very passionate about these things. So, uh, And I'm not just saying this because, you know, he's my friend or, you know, I've on, I'm on his show or something. I'm saying this because it's true. Um, he is, uh, I think he has ascended to be the number one conservative in conservative world. Uh, uh, voice in the country. You're a close second, obviously. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the fact of the matter is he is, uh, you know, he, Rush Limbaugh used to hold that title, I think. Um, and now with the passing of Rush a couple of years ago, uh, I think Tucker has taken over that title. And, you know, it's important to have people like you and Tucker and other extremely smart and um, passionate conservatives, because, as I said, there's been an institutional capture by the left of almost everything. Everything we hear is from the left in our institutions. And you and I have been involved in, you know, uh, educational institutions, um, private uh, schools and things of that nature. And all the educational institutions have been captured by the left. So having people like you and Tucker are extremely important. But again, uh, enough of that. I think uh, people don't want to hear about my my experience with Tucker. But it was it was a lot of fun. It was eye opening, and uh, it's it's. Uh, Gratifying to know that we have people like that on our side. Yeah, um, I concur. Um, it is, uh, Pete, and and I appreciate <clears throat> all of that perspective. You know, it's funny when you talk about people people being petrified. I started the show this morning with that CBS poll that showed that 73% of Americans, and this is CBS, nobody can accuse this of being a right-wing push poll of any kind. CBS uh, poll said, YouGov poll said, 73% of Americans are either scared or angry about the future direction of this country. Just one out of 10, 11%, said they are excited about the future of this country. And and let's take a look at why we are where we are in this country right now. Let's take a look at the inflation rate. Let's take a look at the uh, supply chain. Let's take a look at the, the southern border. Let's Let's take a look at the crime rates. Let's look at all of the things we talk about, energy costs, gas prices. Um, all of these things are direct results of the Biden policies that were instituted literally on day one when he signed a slew of ex- executive orders. Now, just about two years uh, ago to the to the day, well, 10 days from now. And um, and and people are 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 scared and uh, and and angry about the direction of this country. So what I want to know is. Why are they still so supportive of the policies that got us there? Um, because if you look at the midterm wave that we were supposed to get, the midterm uh, tsunami we were supposed to get, we didn't get. Uh, the Americans who say they're scared and afraid still put their trust somehow in large part. Look at the Senate now. It was 50-50. Now it's 51-49. You know, and, and of course, we, we did not win nearly as many House seats as we should have. And the Americans who are scared and angry are still saying, Democrats, go ahead and take the, take the reins. Yeah. 
Uh, I think there are several factors. First is, uh, as I said before, there's been an institutional capture by the left and mainly among the media. If you look at the media reports on virtually any political subject, we know which way they're going to go. It's hard left. They, uh, the fact that Biden went to the border, uh, the media was dragged there because Biden was there. And when they were there, did they show anything critical? No. Did they show anything like kids in cages? No. Did they, they talk at all about the record of the Biden administration related to immigration? They didn't do it for the first two years. And even when Biden went down there, they didn't go through the litany of of metrics related to what happened on the border. And we can do it. We've done it on the show. Crime with respect to the border. You know, you talk about 450,000 people were encountered the last Trump year, as opposed to two and a half million in the last fiscal year. Terrorism, zero people on the terror watch list in Trump's last year. 78 people on the terror watch list that crossed in the last year. The deaths, remember, kids in cages. Oh, my goodness, they got kids in cages. Also, that was done by Biden and Obama uh, under uh, you know, Trump, there were, uh, I think, 240 deaths of migrants crossing the border. And I, I keep, and I see, that's the problem. We use that term migrants because the media tells us that. It's media coverage. It's illegal aliens who cross the border. I, I, I even got caught in that now. Uh, but in the last fiscal year, it was 748, tripled, more than tripled the number of deaths. But the media don't care now. They don't cover any of that stuff. So I think that's one of the principal reasons, because the media and all of the institutions are promoting, the, they're not simply, uh, you know, neutral. They're promoting promoting the leftist agenda or soft soaping anything negative about them. Second is all the other institutions are doing the same thing. Um, and you can't avoid, I just used the term migrant. Now, you know me, I'm a right wing crank in good standing. There's no way in the world I, and I've been involved in the immigration debate for over 20 years now. I've testified before Congress on it, and yet I fell into the trap of saying migrant, as if, you know, this is somehow a neutral term. These are people who are just showing up, or they're good people that just, you know, they're following all the rules and everything. No, they're not. They are illegal aliens who are taking jobs from Americans, huge numbers of jobs that nobody talks about. They're depressing wages. They're engaged in crime at a far higher rate than uh, Americans in the United States, and yet we simply treat them as if they're just poor migrants. Now, see, yeah, there are good people among them, but you know what? The United States is a most welcoming country in the world, and there's a front door. You can come into the United States by the front door so we know who you are. We can vet you. Do you have any diseases that you're bringing? Are you a terrorist? All these things. But they chose to come through the back door because of the Biden administration and the media's coverage for that. Uh, so that, I think that's the, the biggest reason, but also because now a significant portion portion of our population, unfortunately, is in the thrall of the government. They've been bought off, essentially, by the government. They receive benefits from the government. They receive whatever it may be. The government's been tro uh, doling out, literally, trillions of dollars to people for nothing, for doing nothing. And after a while, you go like, you know, this is not too bad. And the Democrats appeal to our basest instincts. Uh, and by that, I mean instincts such as identity politics, instincts such as, frankly, laziness. And you know what? Left to our own devices, human beings, you know, we don't aspire to be necessarily hardworking people if, if there's an alternative. If you can buy yourself a Cadillac for nothing as opposed to having to work for years for it, you know what? Most people are going to default to the former option. So the third thing I think, Bob, is, and there's so many things, but never underestimate the importance and the effect of Republican ineptitude. We saw some of that on display last year, even though I was in favor of the ultimate outcome, which I thought was pretty good. And I thought that the, the fight needed to be had.
Uh, the one difference I had was the manner in which they did it. They know the media is going to paint this. They could have found a cure for cancer, and the media would have painted it as the most horrific thing that had ever transpired in the face of the earth. Republicans know this. They know it better than I do because they run for it. They see it every, run for office and see it every single day. Yet, they couldn't find a way of doing this in a way, and maybe there couldn't have been a way. I don't know. I haven't spoken to, like, you know, some people that I respect, like Chip Roy. I haven't spoke to them yet. I've not been on Capitol Hill in a long time. But nonetheless, we've got a lot of smart, ostensibly smart people in the Republican caucus. You know, you get the Jim Jordans of the world. Of course, Jim Jordan wasn't involved in any of the, the crazy stuff. But at some point, the smart guys like the Jim Jordan, and I don't know that if he did or didn't, um, I think Jim Jordan probably does the right thing almost all the time when it comes to matters of, of legislation in Congress. But the, the Matt Gates's and Lauren Boebert's and other people have got to be pulled aside and said, look, this isn't just about you. This is about the United States of America, and it's about the Republican caucus. And you know for a fact that anything, if we sneeze, the media and Democrats, but I repeat myself, we're going to make this look like we just started World War Four. So you better do something in a way to cosmetics in politics is important. And Republicans often forget that. For Democrats, it's all about cosmetics because their substance stinks to high heaven. Republicans have to find out a way of making sure they spend at least 10 percent of the time on the importance of cosmetics. Yeah, um, it, it is important. Uh, you know, we lose messaging, like you said, because of the media and because of social media, although a lot of that is changing under Elon Musk right now. There's no doubt about that. But um, uh, just to quickly hit this before we take our time out here, this is why it was worth the fight. This is why it was worth, you know, even though I don't think Matt Gates's heart was necessarily in the right place, I think he was making it very personal. I think there was a lot of grandstanding for personal branding. I think he wants to run for president someday, maybe not now, but someday. And I think it was also personal because according to multiple reports that I read, uh, he was livid that Kevin McCarthy would not make a public statement in support of him when Gates was being accused publicly of, uh, of, uh, sex trafficking, of, uh, of, of sex with an underage girl, uh, which he was, was about a year, year and a half ago. <clears throat> so mm -hmm. he was really angry that uh, Kevin McCarthy didn't publicly back him, and this is why mm -hmm. he made it a personal attack. But having said all of that, here's the outcome. This restores, Andy Biggs tweeted all of this, restores the motion to vacate rule that can remove a failing House speaker, uh, which, of course, Nancy Pelosi changed. It restores the Holman rule that holds members of the deep state accountable by stripping their salary. It ensures that bills coming to the floor are single subjects instead of lumping all kinds of things together and then throwing yep. things in that have nothing to do with it. Somebody opposes that last add-on or, or, or amendment, uh, then they vote against it, and then they're accused of voting against you know, capping insulin for for diabetics at $35, all of that nonsense. It requires bill text to be made available at least 72 hours prior to a vote in the House, uh, halts proxy voting in the House in uh, remote proceedings in committees, it eliminates woke gender-specific language, and it establishes a select committee on the Chinese Communist Party and the weaponization of the federal government. All of those right. things coming out of that fight are worth the fight. They're worth having the fight that we just did. Even the embarrassment, even the, you know, uh, you know, the optics of the infighting among Republicans. One of them actually went after the other one, had to be held back. Uh, so all of those things, in my estimation, make all of that worth it. We'll take a time Absolutely. Here, and the last thing, and the last thing is, this lasts for 15 seconds. Next week, we'll be on to something else, and people will forget about it. Exactly. And we'll be talking about all of these different things and uh, and the oversight that yep. uh, that is going to. It fall. was worth it. Time out here. We'll come right back. More Curse Now on AM 1420, The Answer, after this. My head is in a bad place. Have a good time. 
age of unreason. Always right radio with Bob France and the answer. Okay, 1036 now. We do continue on Always Right Radio with our good friend Peter Kirsten now with us for uh, this Tuesday hour. Okay, Pete, you covered a lot of what I wanted to ask you about just in your last uh, uh, monologue. I want to I follow up, though, more specifically. I said to Jim Jordan when I interviewed him on Friday, uh, I think it was Friday, um, that the Biden trip to the border that was scheduled for Sunday was going to be useless and pointless because it was going to be sanitized. The area that he was going to visit was going to be completely wiped clean or whitewashed, if you will, of uh, the migrant camps about, you know, a lot of what you described, I think, can be summarized by saying this is a... Uh, a crisis, a humanitarian crisis for the illegals. It is a national security crisis for the rest of us, but it's a crisis, and that crisis will be wiped away for Biden's visit so that the cameras don't catch anything that will expose the dangers on the border and the dangers for the rest of us that we all know are there. The press pool cannot be allowed to see that while they're in his presence because they will then ask him those questions, and he'll have to answer them. So it's exactly as we expected it would be. Um, but Alejandro Mayorkas came out and continued to repeat that the border is not open, that the border is closed, and he is prepared for any oversight or any attempt at impeachment from his office that the new Republican majority on the committees might bring. Do you believe that um, the uh, commissions or committees rather led by people like Jim Jordan in judiciary and James Comer in uh, uh, oversight do you think they will have any impact in changing what the Biden Homeland Security Department, led by Mayorkas, does with respect to the border? Uh, unfortunately, only cosmetically. I don't. I think it's just going to be superficial. I think that they are so, meaning the Democrats are so beholden to the open borders lobby, and it's not that the, the Democrats are the open borders lobby, and they view this, continue to view this from a number of different perspectives as one of their lodestars, while they have control over so many different levers of government. So I don't think it's going to have. I think it's important that Jim Jordan does what he plans to do. I think it's imperative because this is a threat to every aspect of our country, our economy, our, our peace, our, you know, in terms of crime, uh, in terms of the terrorists that I mentioned crossing the border. 78 people on the terror watch list crossed the border in the last year. That's who we know about. I mean, this is astonishing what's happening here, and they've abandoned one of the principal and essential functions of government. That's to maintain our sovereignty and to look first for the welfare and benefit of the people of the United States, the citizens of the United States. And why do we even have an immigration system at all when we're simply allowing people to come here illegally? And millions of them, literally millions of them. I know people, as I'm sure many of your listeners do, who have family members, people that they know who've had difficulty getting in legally. They're chumps. If you go through the legal process, you have companies here who are trying to bring people here to, to fill jobs that they purportedly can't fill here in the United States, and even they have problems getting visas, etc. But all you have to do is come through the southern border. You could have a criminal record. You could be a terrorist. You could be uh, a pain in the butt to society. And remember, we are talking about, as the um, uh, Center for Immigration Studies showed, we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars in added costs related to dealing with and servicing illegal immigrant populations. This is a debacle. But, the, but to answer your question, no, I, I don't think, uh, frankly, uh, much is going to happen 
related to it, but it needs to be done for transparency. At least you've got to go through certain things, even if the ultimate, there are process values attached to it. You've got to go through the process to maintain the integrity of the system, even if the ultimate result isn't quite what you want it to be. I had written a letter to Mayorkas, a number of them, frankly, but the first one was about a year and a half ago, and detailed many of these things, and I I just very frankly said he should be impeached at that time. And as a member of the Civil Rights Commission, I asked him for certain information to which I'm entitled. Never got a response. And I've gotten responses from all kinds of people in the past when I've asked for information from governmental officials, not from Mayorkas. He is a travesty. He should, he should be out of office, and they need to go through the impeachment mechanism. And who knows? Uh, maybe there will be a groundswell surrounding the impeachment I doubt it because I doubt that the media is going to play fair and cover it. But if the impeachment is covered appropriately and we have enough people expressing dissatisfaction and, frankly, outrage at what they've seen, maybe politically he's jettisoned. But what's that going to mean? They're simply going to replace him with his clone, somebody who's going to perform in the same kind of function as he currently performs. Uh, Peter Kirsten, I was our guest on AM 1420, The Answer. Um you know, it's it's just getting to be so much nonsense, Peter, that even Democrats are turning on Democrats because of the um, immigration fiasco, the chaos, the, the disaster, the crisis, whatever you want to call it. Um, I don't know if you saw Lori Lightfoot, mayor of, of uh, or excuse me, uh, uh, yeah, mayor of Chicago, uh, told Colorado, Colorado's governor, another blue state governor, to stop sending illegal migrants from Colorado to Illinois and specifically to Chicago because they are overflowing, overflowing or being overrun with them. Now, they usually only complain when people like Greg Abbott would send bus loads or plane loads or whatever from Texas into blue states. But sanctuary cities like Chicago, which are supposed to be welcoming to all of these quote unquote undocumented persons, otherwise known by you and me as illegal aliens, um, they're mad when, when Republicans send them up. They want the Republican red states to have to deal with all of the economic turmoil, the crime, the filth, and everything else by themselves. But now Democrats are sending them to other Democrats, and Democrats are sending them back and saying, don't give them to me, give them to you. When do they turn their attention, like you and I are, to Mayorkas, to Biden, to to the uh, the establishers of the policy here, uh, Peter Kersenow, because uh, yeah. that's what it's going to take. They're never going to listen to you and me and conservatives gripe. In fact, Biden said before he took his trip, he said, yeah, legal immigration, all, uh, Republicans and conservatives, the far right, I think he said, are always going to use it to score political points. So they're never going to take us seriously when we say we're overrun. But you know what? Maybe Eric Adams saying, hey, Mr. President, I need another billion federal tax dollars sent to New York City so we can deal with all of the illegals that are showing up here. Maybe when Democrats scream at them, uh, maybe, uh, that, that will be a turning point. Maybe. Uh, and, you know, I'm not going to hold my breath because the Democrats are so invested in this political narrative of theirs. They think it helps them politically. And more importantly, they're driven by these ideologues who don't care about borders, who who despise the United States of America and its people. But you're right. When you get Eric Adams and Muriel Bowser and others like that, and Lori Lightfoot saying, hey, hold on, uh, you know, despite the fact that we're a sanctuary city, we can't handle this stuff. At that point, they know that their constituents aren't putting up with this stuff. The crime is going up. The, the lawlessness, the homelessness, the, the litter on the streets, the complete and utter dysfunction, and the, the pressure on the public fisc that they can't handle. Well, you know, it will reach a critical mass, but I still think 
that despite that political blowback, the Democrats are going to stick with open borders as long as they've got Joe Biden in the White House. He is an empty vessel. Their best vehicle by which they can promote all of their crazy leftist leftist agendas that even the Obamas of the world didn't try. Obama was restrained by the fact that he at least could think through some of the consequences of this and knew that electorally he couldn't move like this. Biden is not that smart. And, and Biden is frankly not that engaged. I am not really sure. And I wonder if your listeners believe the same. I am not really sure, and I'm not one who to say that Biden is completely brain dead, but I am not really sure that he knows what's going on. I think that he went down there and he shuffles around. He knows that, you know, they've told him, you know, don't change a thing when you go down there. Do not talk about shutting down the borders or anything like that. But I don't think he's ever seen the raw numbers. I don't think they're telling him that. I'm not sure he's actually aware of what's going on, except that maybe someone said, hey, you know what? Things are getting a little dicey here. It could present a problem for us politically. Maybe you should, you know, uh, kind of moderate some of our policies. Um, Unless he is told by the ideologues around him, and believe me, I know some of them. These are some of the hardest leftists you're ever going to see. The, the hardest leftists that have ever been close to the Oval Office in the history of the United States. We're in a precarious position right now because Biden is not calling the shots. As, as, as incompetent as he is, he is not left to his own devices as dangerous as these intentional ideologues who frankly hate. That's not, it's not an exaggeration. I don't think that I'm, I'm going over the top on this. I've talked to some of these people. They despise and hate the United States of America and its people. They want something completely different. That should be frightening to all of us because they're driving the agenda. Yeah, there's no doubt about that, uh, Peter. Um, they are. Um, it's just very, very frustrating if, if what you're saying is true, that he has been so completely kept in the dark about the actual numbers, that if he doesn't know that over $5 million in the first two fiscal years of the Biden administration uh, across the border, and that doesn't count the nearly $1 million gotaways, if he's being lied to about that or is not being informed or whatever you want to call it to give him plausible deniability, that's even worse than if he knew it and was, and was still taking these actions, because that means he's not running his own government. Um, and he's right. not. <clears throat> Pete, let's... Um, Two more topics for you. It's 1046. Uh, breaking news yesterday uh, that the President of the United States, the current President of the United States, who once dressed down the former President of the United States for <laughs> classified documents being mishandled. Um, let's listen to this. When you saw the photograph of the top secret documents laid out on the floor at Mar-a-Lago, what did you think to yourself looking at that image? How that could possibly happen, how one, anyone could be that irresponsible. And I thought, what data was in there that may compromise sources and methods? By that I mean names of people who helped, or et cetera. And it's just uh, totally irresponsible. Totally irresponsible, said Joe Biden, about the classified documents being taken to Mar-a-Lago by President Trump or being brought there somehow with his knowledge. Uh, now, Biden, we find out, we released yesterday, or reported yesterday by CBS News, that a Biden think tank had been storing classified documents since uh, going back to his days as vice president uh, at the Penn-Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement in Washington. Pete, the hypocrisy here, of course, is uh, yep. uh, is obvious. Speak to how these two cases should be handled. Secondly, you know, I, I'm going to go back and say this again. Of all of the classified document retention and exposure that we have seen in the last several years, 
I still think Trump's is the least dangerous. It's in his personal yeah, residence at Mar-a-Lago. Hillary Clinton's was on right, unsecured servers and available to any hacker around the world who wanted to get and it. And they have it. And and and, uh, and now here's Joe Biden's at this uh, Penn Biden Center, where again I'm not saying it's open to the public, but it's exposed to a whole a lot more people than would be in. Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago closet, where where there may have been classified documents stored there. So uh, can you speak to that? Yeah, you can't be a progressive unless you're completely comfortable with howling hypocrisy is first a matter. But you're right. The distinctions here are extraordinary. And again, I'll go back to one of my pet peeves, and that is the distinctions and the double standards by the media in this. Remember that President Trump had unfettered right to declassify documents. This is one giant put on. This, this, it's, and it's with the complicity of the media that they're doing this. And they did it before the midterm elections. They try to you know, make Trump, they, they always try to destroy Trump and by association through the Republican Party. Look how this guy jeopardized national security. One giant crock. First of all, as I said, he had the complete right to do so. Second of all, they didn't find nuclear codes like they were breathlessly talking about. We don't know what Biden has, but we know this much. He was not president of the United States. He did not have declassification authority. His transgression is far, it's not even far worse because Trump's was not bad. His transgression is real. And I'd like to see what Merrick Garland does. First of all, um, why no FBI raid? How come there was no FBI raid? How come the media isn't covering this breathlessly 24-7? Is there going to be a special counsel appointed? You can go on and on and on. But here's the essential thing. Remember they were talking about Trump and nuclear codes and oh my goodness, you know, the Russians could have gotten this. We have, we have clear, unequivocal evidence of Joe Biden getting all kinds of favors from the Chinese. His, his son got huge amounts of money from the Chinese. He has been soft on the Chinese, which is our principal advers- global adversary, and yet no one is talking about, hey, could there be any kind of a problem here? I'm not saying that Joe Biden did anything intentional, but I'm talking about the double standards that we have, howling double standards. It's, it's extraordinary. They should be apoplectic, the media should be, about this. It should be the top story for several days if they're going to be anywhere near as um, uh, even-handed. I'm even laughing at that myself, the media being even-handed. But this was discovered prior to the midterms, and we have no coverage of it whatsoever. Nothing, you know? The the double standard is ridiculous. And look at, you know, you talk about the damage being done. We won't know if there's any damage being done or not. I have no idea. But we talked about the Clinton email server, and we know foreign governments hacked that and had that information. We talked about Hillary Clinton with impunity and the coverage uh, being getting covered from James Comey of smashing her blackberries. Who does that? Who does that? And the media is just kind of like whistling past the graveyard. No big deal here. Nothing to see when she already has a lifelong record of duplicity, of complicity, of corruption. And not to remember the Clinton Foundation and all of the shenanigans related to that and the release of information, top secret information to the Russians and others. We never hear about these things because of the media. It's not even a double standard anymore. They're just completely invested in the pocket of the Democratic Party. So uh, I'm sorry for rambling like this, but this is something that we've we've seen forever and ever, amen, the double standard applied. And uh, I hope we see just a little bit more coverage of this related to the Biden administration. They let him get away with this through the midterms. I have a hard time believing 
and again, maybe I'm too cynical, but I have a hard time believing that Biden's people or whoever it was, the FBI, I can't remember who it was who, who actually found these documents and discovered it was his attorneys, I believe. Yeah, I believe that's I have what a hard time believing. Yeah, I have a hard time believing that this was just a recent discovery. You know, just color me skeptical on this. I, I know that supposedly some of this was found even before the election and nothing was revealed about it. But I have a feeling they knew about this a long time ago. Yeah, I concur. And they probably knew somebody else had found out about it and was going to expose it. So they had to come forth themselves yep. and say, look what we did. Look how honest we are. Once we discovered the quote unquote mistake, the accidental retention of these and the accidental moving the, of them to this, this facility and so forth. Um, look at how honorable we are. Peter, last thing for you. Um, and we'll have to make this one a little bit quicker. And we're going to go back to the oversight questions before, but this time about something different. Uh, there's a new committee that's being formed. Uh, uh, it's a House Judiciary subcommittee that is going to be led by the Judiciary Committee Chair himself, expected to oversee, uh, they're calling it the Weaponization uh, Subcommittee, which is going to be looking at the FBI and targeting them for their targeting of parents and their targeting of people like Scott Smith, remember the dad whose daughter was assaulted uh, in the Loudoun County uh, 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 school uh, bathroom by a quote-unquote trans student. Uh, But the FBI agencies and the intel agencies as a whole are all on the table now and uh in addition to this the committee is apparently going to be digging into the twitter files which is i think very very important as well um purporting to show that the fbi was the point of entry for myriad government agencies influencing the flow of information on twitter Biden critics have suggested that Twitter engaged in shadow banning and outright censorship of leading conservative voices and presidential enemies at the administration's direction. Now, that's one thing for critics to say that, but it's another thing for Elon Musk to show that, and he has. So now there's going to be a full-on investigation here. Again, I'll kind of go back to the question I asked about the the, the Hunter-slash-Biden family laptop and everything else. What level of accountability, if this can be proven, uh, do you think there will be for the FBI and for these intel agencies that are acting in such ways against the American people? I, uh, for a number of reasons, and we don't have time to get into it, I have more confidence that there will actually be some real-world consequences to this. I think Jim Jordan and others are going to get to the bottom of this. I think it's already so plainly apparent as to what happened. I'm still stunned that Christopher Ray can even look himself in the mirror. But I do think that this is one of the most important stories of the last decade. The weaponization of the FBI and other intel agencies, they are, this is not an exaggeration. You know, you know I do my homework on, on these things, and I've been, you know, I, I think I know a little bit about this. This is as close to, without Americans being killed, to a, an American Stasi or an American secret police that you get. This is an abomination what has occurred. Um, um, my, my colleague Gail Harriet on Civil Rights Commission and I were the, the first people who publicly blew the whistle with respect to the FBI going after parents at school boards. Um, this is extraordinary. Um, a national police force is what the FBI is being directed at law-abiding Americans based on political ideology. That used to happen in East Germany, Soviet Union, etc. Now, we're not disappearing people into gulags except for the January 6th folks. There are a number of people still in jail, not charged, rotting away for two years. This, uh, th- th- this is extraordinary, the way we have twisted our government around to be just the antithesis of what Americans had prided ourselves upon and expected from our government. And the FBI has enormous, awesome powers. 
when directed against the good guys versus doing their principal function, that is protecting us, for example, from the Chinese spies and also protecting us from every other uh, federal crime imaginable, they're directing their attention at the direction of the Attorney General of the United States against good, law-abiding Americans who serve their country in the military, who pay their taxes. There needs to be heads rolling over this. There needs to be serious consequences, and it should go all the way to the top. They can't excuse anybody. That doesn't mean just Christopher Wray and right. James Comey and the other clowns. This includes the attorney general and the president. Do I believe that the president's going to suffer consequences? No, I don't believe that. But even if it simply means, and I know conservatives too often are satisfied with half a loaf, and I am not, but nonetheless, you take what is clearly available to you. If that means getting rid of Merrick Garland and making sure that his legacy is forever tarnished, which, which it should be, that should be one of the objectives. But you got to clean up these agencies, and if they can't be cleaned up, I actually think they've got to be seriously reformed from the grounds up, ground up, because there is a clear and abiding rot in those agencies that are damaging to the free republic of the United States. Peter Kersenow laying it out as only he can. You know, he's a, uh, a right-wing crank in good standing. I want to see those standings, by the way, to see exactly where you are. Uh, because I think, I think I'm number two him. right now. I'm moving up, though. <laughs> Peter Kersenow, great stuff as always, my friend. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. 10.57, we'll uh, come back after the top of the hour news. We're going to talk to Josh Hammer. We're going to drop the hammer on the left a couple of different ways. Josh Hammer from Newsweek going to be joining us on AM 1420. This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by Keeping Medicare Simple and The Floor King. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. is Always Right Radio with Bob Frantz on AM 1420, The Answer. Eight minutes after the hour of 11 o'clock and hour number three is underway. It is the it is a Tuesday, the 10th morning of the first month of the year of our Lord, uh, 2023. Thanks to Peter Kirsten, now terrific stuff uh, all hour, last hour. And if you missed any of Peter, you can hear it, of course, when the uh, podcast is loaded up after the program today, sometime this afternoon, usually about an hour or so after the uh, broadcast ends, you'll be able to see it and listen to it at whkradio.com, whkradio.com. I want to go back to uh, the speaker fight now, because four days ago, of course, now we actually got the new speaker after a protracted fight. Uh, Kevin McCarthy got what he has long wanted. 
he felt like he stepped aside long enough when he stepped aside in 2012 to let Paul Ryan do it. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, it was, it was probably the right decision then, even though Paul Ryan was terrible. Kevin McCarthy was not going to let his bucket list go unchecked this time around. He was going to stick with this no matter how many votes it took. He finally got it done. And now just one day after having the rules package agreed upon, Everybody is trying to analyze what was won, what was lost, what will be the long-term ramifications, short and long-term ramifications of the GOP's battle royale on the floor of the United States House. Joining us to discuss now is Josh Hammer. Back with us, he is uh, an opinion editor at Newsweek, the host of the Josh Hammer Show. He's a syndicated columnist and a research fellow with the Edmund Burke Foundation. Josh, good to have you back on the air here in Cleveland. How are you? I'm doing great. Happy New Year to you. So great to be back. Thank you. Happy New Year to you as well. I don't how long how far into January do we get to keep saying that? I'm curious. <laughs> We're <laughs> well, 10 days I, I, in. I, you know, I, I I was abroad. I was away for two and a half weeks. I got back last Wednesday, so it's I'm still in my first week back on US soil, so I'm kind of still feeling it to be honest. I get it. I get it. I like that. And I've been saying it to people I haven't talked to in the new year yet my new year yet myself as well. So I think that that factors in. So let's. There's a few different things I want to get into here, and I want to talk about your piece of a couple of days ago, Kevin McCarthy. Drama underscores the impotence of the Republican elite, and I want you to explain what you mean by that. And then I want to, I don't want to say challenge, but I want to talk about some of the uh, some of the things that this battle between the elite and the outsiders or the holdouts or whatever it is that you want to call them uh, really brought about here. But what do you mean by the impotence of the Republican elite? So it's a three pronged impotence as far as I see it. The first is the fact that from a most basic and straightforward perspective, Republican leadership itself has been shown to be incredibly weak. I mean, Kevin McCarthy has wanted this job since the very first day that Kevin McCarthy campaigned to be a U.S. congressman from his previous time serving in the California state legislature back when he was in Bakersfield, California. He has always wanted one thing and one thing only, and that is to accumulate more personal power and ultimately to wield the speaker's gavel. You know, if you go back to the Tea Party era, 2010, 2011, he was one of the icons of the GOP so-called Young Guns program alongside Paul Ryan and Eric Cantor. He was always fluffed. He was always promoted by Republican leadership, by the very kind of close kind of K Street nepotism wing of the Republican establishment as kind of the next big thing. The obvious problem for kind of conviction, ideological-based conservatives like myself and so many others is that we have no idea what Kevin McCarthy purports to stand for, other than kind of the most mealy-mouthed platitudes of tax cuts, domestic energy production, things of that nature there. And the fact that it took him 15 ballots, 15 ballots to survive, is remarkable. And it really reveals, I think, how weak the Republican establishment's hand is. And by the way, that hand should be weak. That hand should be weak in the aftermath of the fact that the red wave that all of us were so convinced would happen did not end up materializing in the midterm elections a couple months ago. So that's the first thing. The second thing to note, though, is that President Trump himself, I do not think, comes out of this looking particularly good. You know, I've seen some folks try to spin it that ultimately his phone calls at, at the very end when Marjorie, Taylor, when Marjorie Taylor Greene got him on the phone there and that kind of iconic photo kind of swayed it. But the, the undeniable reality is that President Trump endorsed McCarthy before the balloting even started, and then he doubled down in vociferous fashion after the first three failed ballots. It took 12 more ballots, 12 more ballots just to sway the outcome. And you had some incredible quotes from some of the Trumpiest members of Congress, folks like Matt Gates here in my state of Florida, 
who literally said to the camera, he said, you know what, President Trump, if he has one downside, it's personnel. It's not knowing when to pick good people. Lauren Boebert of Colorado went so far as to tell Trump to instruct Kevin McCarthy to withdraw, to step down. So I don't think from a Republican Party national perspective, President Trump comes out that's looking particularly well. And then the third bucket of folks who kind of in the Republican elite broader umbrella who I don't think look particularly well here are the conservative commentators who went to the mattresses, who went all out, all out for Kevin McCarthy, including just belittling, excoriating, and, you know, sometimes even dehumanizing the merry band of 20 conservative detractors. There are any number of folks really out there in kind of the broader kind of corporate Republican media wing, you know, I can name names if we, if we really want to, but I think of some of those names should be obvious for people who are paying attention there who really sure. just did not come away from this looking very good either. I think that's fair on all three uh, of those positions. We're talking to Josh Hammer from Newsweek and the Josh Hammer Show. Um, there's so much to unpack from everything you just said. I want to go to the Gates question because um, I read a couple of articles uh, or reports or tweets. I don't remember what they were anymore. I read so much stuff. That that one of the reasons Matt Gates was so incredibly belligerent about this whole thing, and quite frankly nasty and ugly about this. I'm not saying he was wrong to to take the position he took, but was this for the betterment of the party? Was this for the betterment of the constituents, the betterment of the people, the betterment of the house, or was this personal? And what I read in a couple of places was that Matt Gates has been livid that Kevin McCarthy, as minority leader, would not step up for him in the last year and a half or so uh, when Matt Gates was accused of of sex trafficking and sex with an underage girl and 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 all kinds of other really untoward things. There were a lot of people who thought Matt Gates was going to have to resign because this was such a serious charge. As it turns out, he was never charged officially. Uh, and everything kind of went away, which I'm sure Matt Gates's uh, mind proves his innocence. And he, he, Kevin McCarthy, never stood up for him, and uh, and and had his back when people were calling for his resignation. So, in your opinion, Josh, did Gates make this personal, or was this professional, and was this political? So, I think you saw within that band of 20 McCarthy skeptics, you saw some folks who. I think recognize that there was a very slim chance of defeating Kevin McCarthy from the outset and that the best possible outcome was a weakened, borderline humiliated McCarthy, whereby they gave many concessions. I'm, I'm thinking here about folks like Chip Roy of Texas, who I think was kind of the, the leader of this crew, the crew that maybe did not ultimately want McCarthy's personal scalp, but ultimately wanted a, a house that was more in line with what kind of the problem, what the Senate and House parliamentarians call regular order with more devolved power, with more conservative influence on the Rules Committee, things like that. And then you did have kind of a, a smaller band within that subset of 20 who I think really did make it personal. And, you know, to be totally honest with you, Bob, I, I find myself kind of torn between those two camps. I mean, you know, ever since the day that I started following national politics in earnest, I'm a fairly young guy, I really kind of start falling in earnest during kind of the Tea Party era, I, I have not been a fan of Ken McCarthy. I mean, I, I have no reason for personally disliking him. I've never even met the man. But like I said, as a kind of a conviction conservative, I simply do not trust him. So I, I confess partial sympathy for the folks who really did want to nuke his candidacy and just wanted a frankly better and more palatable conservative option. But having said that, if I were, you know, if I were a congressman last week, I think I would have ultimately sided with Chip Roy and that crew because they really did get what they wanted. I mean, these, these are meaningful, meaningful concessions. I mean, 12 individual appropriations bills. So I, to, to kind of answer your question, I think it was a mixed bag. You know, I, I can't speak for Matt Gates personally. I, I 
don't really know the details of, uh, of what he and McCarthy talked about during the times of those allegations of sex trafficking. But I think there were people within that band of 20 who were fighting for different reasons, probably. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Not not everybody had the same exact reason for opposing him. Uh, but but let's talk a little bit about the concessions, because you're right. I mean, this and this. It weakens Kevin McCarthy. It probably, you know, maybe embarrasses him a little bit. I think Gates said that, you know, if he does get the votes, he's going to be wearing a straitjacket, essentially. You know, the uh, the motion to vacate just one member can can uh, uh, force a vote to replace a failing House Speaker. The Holman rule gets added. Some of these are very positive. Andy Biggs, who, of course, was part of that outsider group. As well, tweeting, uh, this ensures bills coming to the floor are single subject, or at least 12 of them anyway, as you point out. The text must be made available for at least 72 hours prior to a vote, rather than less than 24, as they did with the omnibus monstrosity. No more proxy voting in the House. Uh, no more gender-specific language, any of that nonsense that they were adding. And then the Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party. All of those were very good concessions, and it kind of makes me wonder... Why would McCarthy have been fighting those anyway? If he really truly wants to lead a conservative uh, Republican caucus and, quite frankly, the, a conservative majority House, why would he have been? Why would those have been concessions? Why wouldn't he have been all along? Well, heck yeah, a single vote. Heck yeah, we need to. You know, we need to adopt these things because this is what's right for the American people. This is what a truly conservative republic should look like. Well, I think you're asking the exact right question, and the question kind of answers itself because. The very fact that we're even asking this question on air right now, I think, reveals the fact that Kevin McCarthy does not prioritize either procedural or even necessarily substantive conservatism. Rather, the arc of Kevin McCarthy's career trajectory, and, you know, I should clarify here that Kevin McCarthy is not the only one. I mean, there are any number of congressmen in the current Congress and previous Congresses, obviously on both sides of the aisle. This is hardly a unique Republican phenomenon, but... Kevin McCarthy in particular, he clearly does prioritize his own power, his own career standing, his own stature, his own ability to kind of dictate the rules. In the past, if you kind of look at Kevin McCarthy's time in GOP leadership, because from whip to caucus leader to now speaker, he's been serving in Republican leadership in the House for many, many years now. He has been a consistent proponent of kind of legislation via crisis, of waiting until opportune moments of kind of a debt ceiling fabricated crisis or a government shutdown threat, various kind of levers like that, which he then is able to exploit to write bills in kind of top-down fashion. So the very nature of kind of legislating via emergency fabricated full crisis actually itself redounds to his own power, because when you reach that point, any semblance of kind of regular order of drafting and marking up bills and committee with the amendment process, the way it's actually supposed to work. If you kind of think back to your schoolhouse rock civics 101, at that point it becomes impossible because at that point you have to write it down from the top. We are talking to Josh Hammer, opinion editor at Newsweek. He is also the host of the Josh Hammer Show. And uh, Josh, I want to go back to a column you wrote last month to follow up on this discussion of GOP leadership and the GOP House in general. And you wrote, you wrote an article uh, questioning why the GOP elite hates its own base. And one of the examples of that, I mean, first of all, we could say that 18 uh, Republican senators voted for the omnibus spending package. Uh, and I, don't, I forget how many, but a, a significant handful on the House did the exact same thing. But the Respect for Marriage Act, which we know is, like the Inflation Reduction Act, it's completely false in terms of its name. It doesn't respect marriage. It completely destroys marriage, as marriage has always been known. 
But aside from that, um, it is deeply, deeply unpopular among the overwhelming number of conservative Republicans who make up the GOP base. Yet 12 senators voted for it. 39 Republican uh, congressmen uh, supported it as well, as you point out here. It does kind of indicate that while they talk you know, a, a good game about trying to support the conservative Republican movement in this country that is trying to bring back the Constitution and trying to restore some sense of normalcy, they sure have a hell of a way of showing it when they vote for things like this. Look, Bob, if I had a nickel for every time over the past 10, 15 years, Republican leadership has thrown its all predominantly evangelical Protestant, traditional, traditionalist, Catholic, Orthodox, Jewish, you know, the core religious, socially, culturally conservative base. If I had a nickel for every time that Republican leadership has thrown that base out the window over the years, you know, I would, I would be a very wealthy man by now. But you're right to flag this particular piece of legislation. And in that column that you're graciously flagging that I wrote last month, what stood out to me in particular, the bill is egregious on its own merits. And it's egregious on its own merits for numerous reasons. The first and foremost reason is that it statutorily codifies an erroneous definition of marriage, that it codifies a definition of marriage that is at odds with thousands and thousands of years of human history, with lived empirical reality as to what the best nature of raising children is, one man, one woman, and obviously the self-evident truth in Judeo-Christian religions more broadly. The other problem with the bill, of course, is that it is woefully inadequate from a religious liberty perspective in trying to protect institutions who try to live by their faith. So the bill is a very, very bad bill, but even more than that, I think what stood out to me was the fact that they saw fit to pass this in a lame duck Congress. They wanted to do so when political accountability was at its very lowest. And, you know, that column that I wrote was basically just trying to talk about what was happening in the lame duck Congress, because what happens in lame duck sessions is, generally speaking, very revealing. You see what the people or what the congressmen and senators are trying to hide because they just had an election. There's not going to be an election for another time. Now, so it's very difficult, perhaps impossible, to look at the affair that was the passage and enactment of the so-called Respect for Marriage Act and include anything other than the fact that the Republican base just or, – or that the Republican leadership, I should say, just despises the religious and social conservatives in their base. There is simply no other reason for doing this. And it, that particular piece of legislation was even more insidious, actually, because the various kind of Democratic proponents of the bill, what they did, it was, it was actually quite clever. It was deeply cynical, but it was quite clever. They also statutorily codified not just same-sex marriage, but that interracial marriage would be legal. Now, you know, the, the problem here is that this is so profoundly cynical. It is obviously, obviously not even remotely within the confines of anyone in America's possible countenance of changing the definition of marriage to go back to the pre-Loving versus Virginia, the pre-Jim Crow days. But because they kind of packaged this together, they were able to sell it to the American people more broadly. And sadly, there were actually some Republican useful idiots who kind of played up that as well. Well, yeah, it enabled them to call opponents not only homophobes, but racist as well. Exactly. And that's, that's the reason they lumped them together. Um, real quick, though, Josh, when, when you said it, it very clearly shows that these Republicans despise their base. They despise their supporters. Um, is it really that, or is it just that they don't respect them enough um, to, to do as they ask and to do what they put them for, there for because they don't fear them? In other words, 
Democrats have moved so far left, so radical. The party is hardly recognizable from what what it was when I was a, a Clinton voter uh, back in the you know back in the early nineties when I was just a kid coming out of college and didn't know any better, and I was registered Democrat because my parents were Democrats. It's it's so much different now that I feel like the Republicans who would vote for a bill like this and who would vote for that that spending monstrosity, they're they're looking at their base and saying, "What are you going to do? Vote Democrat? You know, you're not going to vote Democrat." You're going to support us because you've got no choice. That radical thing over there, you could never cast a vote for. So they have no fear of losing voters. They have no fear of anybody turning and voting Democrat because, I mean, the idea is just so obscene. Democrats are evil. Republicans are weak and ineffective, but Democrats are evil. And so Democrat or Republican voters are never going to turn away no matter how many, no matter how many times they get disrespected. I think that's right. It's also kind of just... And it's really kind of an inescapable reality of the modern two-party system. I mean, someone like someone like myself, who's a committed, convictional, ideological conservative, you know, I, I, the notion of, of of pulling the ballot for a, a modern Democrat is crazy. I mean, I mean, you know, I, I, I suppose it's always possible that someone under a partisan label could espouse beliefs that are contrary, but that's just not what happens in today's day and age. And, you know, again, this is not just a Republican establishment phenomenon. I mean, you know, if you if you look at the Democratic Party establishment, you know, I think many on the on the far left and kind of the woke AOC, Ilan Omar squad wing, you know, if you go listen to their radio programs and podcasts and whatnot, they would probably have similar complaints, to be honest with you, about the Democratic establishment for the exact same reason. You know, if you if you think back to the 2020 presidential election, you know, Joe Biden was he was touted as, as a moderate, which he kind of sort of was way earlier in his career back in the 80s, 1990s. But, you know, as recently as the 2020 presidential election, the far left of the party, I think, largely voted for Joe Biden, less due to Joe Biden because they hated Donald Trump so much. So it's, it, it's kind of two sides of the same coin. The same paradigm is playing out there. I, I'm not entirely sure how to solve that particular problem. One tactic that kind of Republican and conservative activists during the Tea Party era start to do a lot more often, which we probably should try to bring back to the extent we can, is to try to primary weak incumbents. I mean, that is really kind of where these fights should be fought, is within the confines of, of trying to single out particularly weak, egregious incumbents who enjoy these $1.7 trillion on the bus bill disgraces. So maybe we, maybe we should try to start bringing some of these more competitive primary fights back, because those seem to have gone away at least a little bit in recent years. Josh Hammer, opinion editor at Newsweek, the host of the Josh Hammer Show. Always appreciate your insight. Always appreciate your work, too. It's, uh, it's nice to see in a publication like Newsweek a little bit of reason and common sense and, as you say, convic- conviction conservatism. Thank you so much, Josh. We appreciate having you on. Anytime, Bob. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. It's uh, 1128. We'll take uh, time out here for news. We'll come back, and maybe we'll talk a little bit more with people about whether or not they're proud to live in this country. Surveys show some of us are. But a particular generation of us are not. We'll follow up on that, see if you've got thoughts on it at 216-901-0945. Always Right Radio, right back after the news. This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by The Floor King and Keeping Medicare Simple. It is 1137. 
Thanks so much for being with us on Always Right Radio, AM 1420, The Answer. Great conversations now with both Peter Kersenow and Josh Hammer. Again, both of those will be available on the webpage, whkradio.com, whkradio.com. And uh, it'll be up there loaded up. What, Josh or Johnny Ahaz, what would you say, about an hour after the show? Somewhere in that neighborhood? All right, there you go. Johnny says about an hour after the show. So if you missed any of those interviews or any interviews that we've had over the last few days, take a look at the uh, webpage. Don't listen too far back, though, because then you're going to steal the stuff we're going to use on our next best of, whenever that might be. <laughs> um, sad note here. I, I got a phone call uh, from uh, Tanya, I'm told, off the air, uh, letting me know that. And I did know this. I uh, kind of saw it this morning, I think, but it... Uh, uh, it is not something that I've talked about yet, so we want to offer our condolences and prayers for uh, for Diamond. Uh, Diamond, uh, well-known of Diamond and Silk, a true, strong conservative, a very close friend and strong supporter of President Trump, has passed away. Uh, Diamond, uh, according to almost every report that I've seen so far, uh, no cause of death is given. She's very, very young, 51 years old. She's just, uh, she made a name because they were very flamboyant in their conservatism. Is that a fair way to say it? I think it is. It's kind of flamboyant, very loud and out there, very uh, somewhat glamorous. They, they drew attention to themselves, did Diamond and Silk, and I'm sure Silk will continue to do so. But Lynette Hardaway is her name. Uh, and uh, they were very, very outspoken and very, very loud and very, take a look at us. We're two black women that love Donald Trump, love America first, love make America great again, love America, and we're not going to listen to anybody tell us any other way. Uh, the way so many African Americans in particular get called Uncle Toms, then they get accused of uh, you know, being race traitors and so on and so forth, and uh, they, they're not having it. They weren't having it. They're not having it. They were very, very strong and very outspoken in their support of conservative causes. And now Diamond has passed away at age 51, and everybody's wondering why. And by the way, it's okay to wonder why. Um, I'm looking on Twitter this morning as the show has gone on, and a lot of people are talking about it and saying, when was her last shot? Did she get the shot? She's dead at 51. She shouldn't be. Did she get the shot? Because of so many people that are suffering either death or near-death uh, health, you know, maladies, you know, cardiac arrest on the court, on the field, on the, you know, the pitch or whatever the case might be. We're just seeing so many people suffering adverse events, blood clots, uh, blockages of arteries and so forth uh, of people that, you know, the numbers are staggering. Numbers are staggering. So people are wondering, and I'm, a lot of people accused those who immediately blamed the shots for DeMar Hamlin's um, uh, injury, uh, you know, on the football field last week. And we all watched that very, very closely. And I said, quit doing that. You don't know if it's the shots. You can ask the question, and that's okay. You can also ask the question, was it Camosio Cordis? But let's be respectful and say we don't know yet. Uh, but some wanted to condemn and castigate anybody who even asked, did it have anything to do with the COVID shot? Well, those people are idiots. You're absolutely allowed to ask, did, did Diamond have the COVID shot? And if so, how many? Because it's happening to so many people who are dying long before they ever should, who, according to numerous reports, had no health problems that we, we knew of. Uh, it's, it's okay to ask that question. Don't blame it. Don't say you know because you don't know. But asking the question about why I, 
uh, you know, a person just 51 years of age just uh, loses their life like that is, 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 is fair game. It is also, of course, fair and appropriate for us to wish condolences and prayers for her, her family, and everybody who enjoyed her commentary and her public persona. Phil is in University Heights. Hey, Phil, thanks for waiting. You're on AM 1420, The Answer. Go ahead, sir. Boy, I'll tell you, you covered just about everything with these with these interviews today. It was unbelievable. And I wanted to just try and hit on a couple of things that I think are really very important. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, number one, the idea of bringing these people on uh, in front of uh, the committee of Jim Jordan, uh, who are uh, basically political prisoners uh, from January 6th. Some of these people are in terrible condition. Some of these people are just sweet, innocent people who were, just got caught, caught, caught into this thing. Some of them came from the west side of the Capitol where the doors are thrust open. I'm, this has to come out. That uh, These are political prisoners. And, and that leads me to point two the, the, that um, uh, Peter Kirstenauer brought up. The experts in, in, that are running this country now, hidden behind the scenes, are are unbelievable uh, advanced propagandists who are trying to destroy this country. And the um, I, I didn't know exactly where it was coming from or how it was being handled. Biden is the perfect um, sham uh, in front of them. He did things that 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 um, uh, our Obama, Obama didn't have the guts to do because he, he's Biden is just a, a phony. He's always been a phony. He, he never had anything. He doesn't care. He's just flim flaming around. So these propagandists are just blowing this stuff out. Like the unbelievable thing that happened last week that he, he goes on in front of the cameras and blames Republicans for the border, just like he did a year ago in front of that uh, red curtain and uh, that we were the source of uh, evil in the world, uh, the right wingers. Um, these people are so sophisticated in, in the propaganda. It, it's got to come out. We've got, it's got to be confronted. And the last thing is something I mentioned just briefly when we talked a couple weeks ago. The pro-choice movement isn't really about uh, abortion at all. It's only a tiny bit. It's about not caring about anything, not taking responsibility for anything. And that's what lost the election, is these people, I think two-thirds of the women today, are, are uh, who are pro-choice, most of them have no children. They're not intending to have children. And if they do have children, they're letting the schools raise them. And they don't care about having a father in the household. We're in such a such a crisis culturally. I'm, I'm terrified. I've, I've, I've got, Phil, I, I love your commentary, and I've got to cut you off now, though, because the show's about to end. I want to let you go as far as I could. That is as far as I could. Thank you to my guests. Thank you to my team. Thank you to you, my listeners. Be well, be safe, stay free. We'll see you tomorrow on Always Let's Radio. Go, Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.